0: This Is the Question Embodies podcast a catalogue of inconclusive conversations about culture, gender, bodies, literature, movies, and horror? With me, your host, Howard David Ingham. In this episode, the Good for Her Cinematic Universe with guest Eve Moriarty. Welcome again to another episode of the Question Embodies podcast, and I'm really excited because it's the first time and hopefully the first of several um, visits to the podcast of my pal Eve Moriarty who is a unaccomplished an poet and researcher and activist and I've known Eve for some years now and Eve, Eve always has the best takes and the most amazing winged eyeliner known to man, woman <laughs> or non-binary human being. So Eve welcome, it's so good to have you Hello.
1: on. It's great to be on, got a lot of opinions not sure
0: they're always the best takes, but they're they my are. favorite yeah. takes in the same way that like all the colours of the dark is one of my favorite 1970s horror movies. It's like no one would call that the best 1970s horror movie. But you know, there we are. Um, I just compared your takes to a Giallo movie. I'm really sorry. So today we've got you on particularly to talk about what what were we going to talk about? We were going to talk about Girl Boss Horror.
1: Yeah, this sort of, is Is it a thing, Eve? Well, I don't know if girl boss horror is a thing, but the, I would say the girl bossification of horror criticism is a thing. Right. I don't necessarily think a lot of the properties that people speak about as being sort of good for here cinema are necessarily actually that. And I think people, I think the impulse for people to want that to be a thing is understandable, but I basically i'm here to say it's completely wrong for as long as you will allow me to do that
0: (laughs) all right so anyway if you're listening at home you should know by now that there will be spoilers right um we 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 eschew the um the practice of hiding spoilers because you have to spoil something to be able to properly talk about it sometimes so um we're going to talk about certain movies um particularly um particularly the movies that came to mind when we were talking beforehand about what we were going to talk about, were, if I remember rightly, The Witch, Midsummer, and Promising Young Woman. Obviously, I particularly, as someone who's written a lot about folk horror, have had a lot of people with terrible takes on Midsummer, especially the people who love it the most.
1: I, mean, I, 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 <clears> I wrote <throat> about this exact thing um, for you around the time. This Indeed, now, yes. Because... I, as a person who unfortunately spends a lot of time online, social and work reasons, I saw just the most... Before I, before I ever saw the film, I, I saw the most sort of... Sort of ugh, least representative of what the film was actually about takes on the film.
0: Even before and you'd even to, seen it?
1: Yeah, and, and went into the film with very, very specific expectations. This is, uh, I do touch on this in the, the thing I wrote for uh, Room 207 Press,
0: Which we'll put in the um, notes as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, like a teeny bit of personal context. I went to see Midsummer because I had been seeing a man in, in kind of a sort of murky on-off, are they or aren't they way. And we had been planning to go and see Midsummer. And then I felt like I was being messed around a little bit. And I thought, I'm just gonna go and see it on my own. And I definitely, I definitely was doing the whole girl boss good for her thing. I was like, I'm gonna go and see this film that I've heard is about just sort of getting revenge on emotional. Worst boyfriends. Rubbish boyfriends. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like my whole intention with going to see Midsummer, and this may not paint me in a great light, was I'm going to go watch the film, feel angry about the boy, and then post the ticket stuff on my Instagram to make clear that I've been to see it on my own. Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> I mean, this is some years ago, this is pre pandemic. So I, I'd it's like you ago, yeah. to, <laughs> you know, whether I have or not, it's <laughs> not for me to judge. But um, I went into it like really ready, this film about what from from twitter particularly and given the the sorts of people that i follow who tend to be different flavors of feminists and media people so I a a lot of novelists a lot of poets a lot of academics a lot of film people and the vibe that i got from the sort of general social media reception to midsummer was just like this is a film about getting revenge on like sort of emotionally shitty man children and then sat down and watched the film and thought what an enormous disservice to this film
0: that is part of what the film is about though part of it it. is
1: it is in a way but i feel like my feelings about that are so complicated because i actually think like and i suppose we should maybe content all the fact that there will be some reference to sexual assault um in in my Discussion of this film because I and think indeed
0: of the discussion of promising a woman. As report,
1: well, well mass, massive warning. Yeah, that's a so film about that. Blanket, isn't it? blanket warning for the episode, but we're talking about women in horror, so that should kind of be self-explanatory because the two yeah. go hand in hand so often. I think that with Midsummer, one of the things that sort of does trouble me is people really frame the and this is a massive spoiler because this is really close to the end of the film, but people really frame the sort of final betrayal of this rubbish boyfriend as him being unfaithful to his grieving right. girlfriend who's in a state of mental collapse. But he has been drugged by a, a sort of very white European spooky eugenicist type cult. And
0: they're Nazis.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then exactly. they actually have
0: literal Nazi slogans on banners across yeah. their street, only they're in Swedish and you didn't read them. They,
1: like, I, I, I have such a huge problem with the framing of somebody being drugged and then... Date rape. Yeah, exactly. Taken to a sex ritual. And, you know... Just because he's a man does not mean that drugging him and then having sex with him isn't rape. Like, I cannot believe the amount of self proclaimed feminists who have watched that film and been like, oh, the final betrayal when he cheats on her with that young girl. And it's like, no, like he is being assaulted. Yeah. You cannot frame that as him behaving badly towards Danny.
0: Yeah. Do you believe um, date rape is a thing? it's a rape scene, you know, it's exactly
1: like you, you, you can't, yeah. You you just can't be a feminist or any kind of sort of humanist and, you know, have double, double standards about whether rape happens to men. Like I, I, I really strongly believe that. And I, I
0: think there are, there are, there are, branches of somewhat older branch more militant branches of feminism that would think that. I, I, I think would that.
1: argue that I mean
0: they're the same branches of feminism that have a problem with trans people and things like that, I would say.
1: Yeah, and I I, I guess what I mean when I say you can't be a feminist if you think that is I don't really think that's feminism. You know, that, I think yes, that okay, feminism there was, that's exclusive feminism that doesn't believe that men can be victims of assault, feminism that isn't generally about, like, oh, this whole gender thing is kind of fucking all of us. Right. I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I just question it's...
0: The whole thing, whether toxic that is super- masculinity is toxic to men. It,
1: this is it, and people, yeah. people often, when you say that, and this is sort of getting off topic from Midsummer. but often when you say that, people are like, why do you have to make it about men to make people care about it? And it's like, well, no, it's about society as a whole. Because really, feminism isn't about individuals. It's about power structures. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but anyway, yeah, with with Midsummer, I went in thinking, this is going to be a film where a girl really, uh, really gets her own back. And instead, it's a film about indoctrination and depersonalization and radicalization.
0: Radicalization, and, yes.
1: Yeah, and brain just just brainwashing and like people often make huge reference to the scene where. So, for, for context, I mean, I would hope if you're listening to this, you've seen Midsummer, because uh, if not. I still think you know what happens. It is.
0: I think the sort of watch. people who um, are listening to this podcast are the sorts of people who have seen Midsummer, probably. Yeah. And
1: yeah. if not, I would say even if you know exactly what happens, it's still worth watching. Um, yeah. Actually, I think it improves with further watches. So
0: as long as you've got a day and a half spare, you know. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah.
1: But it's don't bother long. with the director's cut because
0: it ruins the film. because it's just longer. <laughs> um, That's literally longer, and there's not really it, it, a whole lot else. It, added, it's twelve added to it. minutes longer,
1: and it just strips the nuance out of the film, essentially. So the, the 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 sort of potted summary of the film is: Danny is a young woman who has experienced enormous trauma. Her mentally unwell sister has. Um, died by suicide, taking both of their parents with her. Um, yeah. And what well, you know, I think in the article that I wrote for you, I did express some reservation about the need for specifying um, the the mental health condition the sister has, because yeah. they are quite explicit about what condition she has. And my personal experience of that condition is not that you are like particularly likely to murder your parents. That that is kind of another a horse of a different color. Yeah, I
0: think I think it's it's fair to say that Ari Aster's films, if they do have one glaring flaw, it is in the portrayal generally of neurodiversity and of developmental stuff and of mental health issues.
1: And just. Not, yeah, and disability in general, like,
0: yeah, disability in general is a problem in RAS both of RES's yeah. film features so far, and also actually to a lesser extent in the short film that he did as well. The thing about the Johnsons, which you, but I assume I, you've seen that. Yeah.
1: I, no, I haven't, I haven't. Oh, um, well,
0: I'll, we'll move on from but, that then, just but yeah, but
1: um, yeah, I mean, disability and horror have like a long and very checkered history. And, you know, other people who know more than me have written tons about that. But I think Ariesta continues a long and not particularly proud tradition of using, uh, using disability to portray something monstrous, which I don't necessarily think. Although in the case of Midsummer, it it kind of...
0: The the disabled (laughs) kid is a victim as well because he's been made that way. By the Nazis, in order to like be their prophet, they've bred him that way.
1: For the fact that that is part of their sort of whole eugenicist vibe, is that they've deliberately, uh, you know, deliberately sort of selectively bred a human being to have certain traits um, to fulfill their like terrible ends. And actually, like the fact that that is the case, and people can still come to the end of the film and be like, "I'm so glad that this girl has become part of this awful organisation of people,"
0: is right. Who who, who murder their old people? You know, if yeah, too old.
1: Yeah, Danny is a young woman, probably in her mid to late twenties, early. 30s, mid to late
0: 20s. 20s, yeah. I mean, they're all graduate yeah. students, aren't they? So, like...
1: Yeah, the guys yeah, either doing PhDs. So, yeah, 20s. Um, And she ends up getting, uh, sort of inviting herself along to what is meant to be a sort of a, a boy's holiday to this... Um, Swedish cult, like a, a village. A midsummer that,
0: festival, which is actually a thing in Sweden.
1: Yes. And yeah. I saw speaking about the the social media sort
0: of responses. Oh my god. I,
1: I saw a bunch of takes from people who were sort of American largely saying that the film misrepresents what Europe is like because people don't do that. I have family in Sweden. I have been to multiple Midsummers. Also. Minus the minus the Nazism. It pretty yeah. much is like that. You yeah, wear a white, dress. aren't they?
0: white dresses, <laughs> maypoles. You wear
1: a white dress, you wear a flower crown, you run around the maypole singing a song about a frog, and then you drink loads of back of it and everyone goes mad. Like that
0: is just yeah. how but also, work. Be Real, who was one of the film companies that financed the film and who came up with the idea for the film are a Swedish company who approached Ari Aster and said, could you make a folk horror film set at a Swedish mid-summer festival? Because we think that that would be awesome. That, so it's a Swedish company that, that asked for this. It's made with Swedish people who want who want a folk horror film set at a midsummer festival. It's not othering at all in that respect.
1: It isn't othering at all. And the people who, all the people I have interacted with who have thought that have not been Sweden. because (laughs) like Scandinavian countries in general do have much more of a relationship with the sort of religions and practices of the past. Connections to nature, connections to paganism are just much stronger and more normal there than, than they are here in Britain on our little, you know, essentially very conservative, christian island that's been invaded by every kind of
0: that indeed place. i mean i i've actually i actually had a lot of help um this is a shout out and i actually I had a lot of help understanding this from a from a wonderful swedish queer i know on the social media called uh, villian vicky Vickland, who um ha- was able to confirm what the slogans on the banners said for instance and uh, things like that and, and able to sort of sort of put the uh, Things in context, in conversations and stuff, and they were very, very happy to do that for us. um Lovely, lovely person as well. You know, so. so, you have this thing, and I think we were gonna talk. You were gonna talk about the scene where Pelle, who is the Swedish guy who's basically you of them all there, sits down with Danny, and has that crucial was, scene. Which w- says, do you feel held? Oh,
1: I was gonna talk about that, and I was gonna talk about there are two moments that I think are very, very crucial to. What happens to Danny in sure. the film? And she can only arrive at the point where she's receptive to the indoctrination that Pele and the, the women of the, the cult um, sort of subject her to, because she is very alone and very traumatised and looking for connection. And when Pele sits down with her, he remembers in a way that her boyfriend didn't. It's her
0: birthday, but also he essentially engineers it so that the boyfriend does a crap job of it. He could have yeah. actually been the boyfriend's wingman, you know. He
1: could, but, but I he mean, doesn't. not not to be good for her, but
0: no, no, because it's, it's a it's, wingman, not boyfriend. It's part of the murder plot, you know. It's it like, is, it is, yeah,
1: because you cannot. When people watch the film and they see Pele, the sweet, gentle Swedish man, sit down with Danny and say, Do you feel held by him? Do you, you know, do you feel like he supports and uplifts and loves you? Essentially, do you feel like he makes you feel included and whole? You know, a straightforward reading of that scene is, Oh, this kind, sensitive man is asking this lady like a, a question about if she's having her emotional needs met but really what's happening is she is having her relationship insecurities highlighted to her and having seeds of doubt if not planted and watered
0: well you see having been in the sort in the past in the sort of religious group that actually does do that thing where it fractures your family in order to like bring you into their Ersatz family mm-hmm. it's both it can be a sincere Thing because he thinks he's right to do this that's why so he he's a believer and as a believer he is actually honestly doing it one of the things for it, they were always talking when I was a student and in this group about reaching out to people who were lost and broken and it's like a sense that we are reaching out to people who are lost and broken and bringing them in and fixing them and also separating them from every other relationship they might have
1: it's simultaneously we will embrace you but we will also do the classic abuser technique of isolating you yeah it's it's the you know both both things can be true like the good it, Midsummer is a very nuanced film that has some very unnuanced nuanced uh readings
0: yeah <laughs> like, and I mean the, the so fact that it's explicit they Nazis is not an accident the, the could be when you have a, a director who is a jewish and be a legendary control freak you know about what is in his movies right he's a very very specific guy having met him um i would describe him as meticulous every single shot in that movie was intentional and yeah. is part of, there's no accidents in midsummer you Now no, whether those accidents yeah. mean necessarily wanting them to i don't know but i think that they do actually and you know, he, for instance, fully accepted that the day rape scene was in fact a rape scene. You know, he.
1: I mean, I I think I remember you saying that you, you spoke to him about the the whole sort of girl boss thing off the back of, um, all the conversations we'd had about it, and he kind of was just like, yeah, no, like the film doesn't end well for Danny.
0: Like well, much. he sort of says it doesn't. He, what he said was, if I remember rightly, was that it doesn't end well for Danny, but also that it's kind of sweet. Because she is happy yeah. at the end of it and she's genuinely happy at the end I, of it because this catharsis is reached. I think this is the intention that she is, that the, the happiness is genuine, that the catharsis is genuinely reached in the film. But that doesn't mean that's a good thing.
1: Yes. I read, I read earlier today something Ariasta said about that last moment uh, where we see Danny's face sort of peacefully. Not really smiling, kind of Mona Lisa smiling, I guess. And she is bedecked in flowers. And I, I read that he, and once again, there's there's problematic language here about around mental illness. But he says that she's feeling sort of the uh, the true happiness that only the sort of insane can feel.
0: Yes, but then I feel that his both his movies are basically basically have. although they make a point of like naming the condition that Danny's sister has, I think his movies basically follow that tradition of having horror madness, horror yeah. mad people. Yeah. And I think, I think, I think he, he fully intends her to have gone mad at the end of the film. And
1: For sure, and I don't necessarily think films should only portray things in the most ideologically pure light that they can. Sometimes right. mental illness is frightening say this is a person with mental health conditions. Right. Sometimes, you know, mental health is the stuff of, of horror. And yes. I, 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 I think it, mis- it misrepresents... I, I don't think people are going to horror films particularly to be given a sort of idealised version of the world that, is, that would 100% pass sort of a Twitter smell test
0: we shouldn't expect things to be didactic anyway shouldn't things have to be allowed to have the space not to be didactic to basically show stuff to have subtext and still have meaning because everything's got meaning but it doesn't have to sort of like have Stephen McGann in Call the Midwife coming out and explaining explaining of the week you know yeah exactly I think like
1: if horror is so much of, I mean, the the more I live, the more I think most media is for <laughs> But if horror is largely about trauma and what is monstrous to us and what frightens us, I don't think we can expect it not to ever portray things that we think are problematic or that we don't necessarily want to see or wouldn't want to happen in an ideal world.
0: I mean, the, like, the I don't of horror want to- is that it portrays stuff that we don't want to see.
1: Exactly, or it, or it wouldn't be horrible to us. It wouldn't cause horror in us if we only saw things. But, and I think that leads us back to the girl boss thing. Right. Is people, are tra- people are trying to, and I completely understand the impulse, but people are trying to pull a sort of simplistic, happy ending, wrapped up with a bow message from these films that is comforting and allows you know, allows the person to leave the film feeling like perhaps something has been in in the sort of manner of, you know, Greek theatre has been purged from them and they now can go out into the world with that catharsis having happened. And I completely understand that we live in quite a frightening world, especially mm. um, when we're talking about living in the worlds of women and, I totally get why a lot of people want to read these properties as, you know, good for her. She really got what she deserved in the end or she really got revenge. And I think while I understand the impulse, I don't, I don't agree with it as a branch of media criticism because I think it not only, I think it actually does a disservice to um, the female characters in these in these films, right? I, Midsummer is completely about trauma and how receptive that trauma and grief and loneliness and isolation lead to indoctrination. And the scene, the the, the scene that I was going to talk about earlier, um, other than the one with Pele, yeah. was um, the very famous one that people always talk about, where. Danny has this moment with the women of the, the Haga where they all do these like primal screams. Like Danny's expressing her like terrible, dark emotions. And then all the women join in, everyone's kind of crying, screaming together. And a very popular way to read that scene is it's a moment of. Communion and sharing a feeling, but to me, that's a moment of her very specific individual feeling, kind of being made part of this communal. She's being
0: appropriated.
1: Theme. Yeah, it's yeah. depersonalizing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, again, again, what I would say to that is, why not both? Yeah, I, think, I that's think that's how I think they everything see everything it, about, it. As, a, as a, everything about the film is both, I think. I, I think I think oh, yeah. one of the thing oh, is is that I think is a mark of the success of the film that a lot of people basically take take that sort of face value thing of Danny actually coming out good because it means that the cult got them too, and I think any yeah. successful film about cult indoctrination and religion has to have the risk of you actually falling for it, right?
1: Yeah, God, I wish I would said that. That's such a good uh, little yeah i agree completely
0: right but yeah um
1: that's great
0: yeah i i yeah speaking of radicalization of folk choruses we're on that uh, we could probably move on to the witch actually yeah the
1: witch which i
0: <laughs> which i
1: rewatched this afternoon um to just refresh because it's a while since i've seen it and i really um I'd be interested to hear your take on the radicalization element because right. I, I have a sense we might disagree.
0: Okay well I have, I've I've watched The Witch a few times now and the first time I saw The Witch I absolutely adored it and then the second time I watched The Witch I'm like eh it's all right. Um, but the basic thing is and of course again we're going to spoil it where well, you've got it set in 17th century New England. You have a family of puritan settlers who are in some for some doctrinal reason have differ with the leadership of the colony and they're rejected from the colony and have to make a farmstead out in the woods on their own mm-hmm. they are picked off one by one by witches who incidentally are also not from round there the only indigenous people you see in the film are a couple of indigenous traders in the background in the colony, the indigenous people are part of civilization. The monsters are white as well in the film. And what happens is that the family are picked off one by one. First, the baby in an exquisitely horrible scene, um, which I don't want to go into too much. And then the kids.
1: As well, the baby, it's um, it's important that because of the isolation from the colony, the baby's unbaptized.
0: Oh yeah, the baby is, on, I didn't get to be baptized. And also the baby, it was on the watch of the older sister, who's Thomason, who's played by Anya Taylor-Joy in one of her earlier significant roles. I think it's like the first-
1: It was her first screen role.
0: First in a, in a big, big screen role, first feature it, yeah. film role, yeah. And um, and, and, and she, she knocked it out of the park for that, but it's on her watch that the baby disappears. So immediately she's blamed. The boy gets tempted in the forest, and that's on dad's watch. And that's dad's fault in a lot of ways, which is not helped by the fact that dad actually does blame himself. and He's played by Ralph Innocent, who's Finchy off The Office, which is the maddest thing. Um, and the mom, the mum has her own failings. She 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 has erotic dreams about jesus
1: she has this beautiful scene where she talks yeah. about when she was a young woman and she had this dream where she was was so close to jesus and she felt his love like physically extremely strongly and then she says my heart has turned to stone yeah as a result of her grief and it's i mean the Witch and Midsummer are both about grief to, to some degree, and both about isolation and yeah. being not in your own environment. Folk horror. Yeah. They, you know, the settlers in The Witch are English, transplanted to America. In Midsummer, they're Americans in a completely alien environment that adds to that sense of being like, oh, the, the main character actually is the other, yeah. Like, we, because because they're the perspective characters, we don't necessarily, the first person you see in a film tends to be the person you identify with, even if they're the villain. Yeah. Because that's the person whose perspective you're kind of seeing the world through. But like, they are other. They're not part of society. They're not from that land, as you said. There's very few sort of Native American representation like there's a couple of people trading as you said. Yeah in the in background B. Like yeah. you know, it, it's it's really couple not-
0: I think they're Iroquois or something like in the background. And that's that's it. Right. I'm probably wrong and someone will someone will come in and say no, that's not the tribe that they're in. But I, I have no doubt that they were accurately represented tribal people. I'm sure in the background. I'm sure. Uh, because like meticulous, meticulous attempt uh, like historical accuracy, right to the extent of doing this sort of weird prefabricated dialogue that I don't think represents how people actually talked in the 17th century, but gives an idea of how alien it must have, it would be to us for people like that. Because um, they talk in a very literary written style kind of way, because it's from witch trials and letters and things. Um, yeah.
1: The radicalization
0: bit comes in is that I could imagine a film that's set in, for example, um, Yemen or Syria, where there is a family who are basically perfectly normal, and one by one they die because of the impersonal bombings of outside forces, and eventually all that's left for the eldest daughter is to go off and join a radicalised sect. Which is what um, happens in The Witch.
1: Yeah, I mean, very slight tangent, but have you seen Under the Shadow?
0: I have, yes. I adore that film.
1: just made me think of it when you were speaking then.
0: There is actually a film called Day Night, Day Night, which is about a young woman who basically gets indoctrinated by Islamic fundamentalist terrorists to become a suicide bomber.
1: That's interesting. I am, um, yeah, with the, with, with the witch, I find it interesting because I was trying to, I was watching it with an eye on radicalization just because of a text exchange that you and I had had yes. earlier in the day. And then I re watched before recording this with you. And for me, I just couldn't get past the no doubt accurate, but absolutely suffocating religious obsession that the family has with their, their christianity
0: it's it is evangelicalism it exactly. is like the early early evangelical that is how evangelicalism works it that is, is exactly. evangelicalism and it means- evangelicalism i can tell you yes it is it never goes away and you're expected for it to never to go away
1: yeah i mean not quite the same but i know you and i were both uh, Reason, quite religious environment. I was so I kind of
0: no, no. I was raised by a. Oh, school, no, school, well. I got I got radicalized by fundamentalist oh, community. Yeah. yeah,
1: I uh, see. I'm the opposite. I I went to a Catholic primary, Catholic secondary, and then I went to sixth form in what used to be a convent. So I I've been around um, an awful lot of Christians. Yes, and Catholicism is
0: quite different, because Catholicism tends to be about community and tends to be about the communal control of groups of people. Well, and cynically put, okay, and evangelicalism is about how you are supposed to individually sort of develop this sort of groupthink and basically to police your own thoughts. I mean, um, people, people bang on about Orwell being prophetic, but Orwell, the reason Orwell calls his book 1984, because he's writing it towards 1948, he's writing it in 1947, and like, um, he's just flipping the years around, and he Orwell witnessed people with purity politics, and witnessed people because Bolshevik communism also had the same sort of mindset as evangelicalism, there are only certain books you're allowed to read. There are only certain things that you were allowed to. Get. In fact, also Nazism, these are ideological purity and stuff, right? You know, um, Bolshevism, all these things. I I, I, I I, have in the past really, really annoyed both communists and evangelicals by pointing out seven different things that I could work out were actually sort of um, commonalities between the two um, belief systems. Um, it, it drives all that um and speaking as someone who's very left-wing and kind of marxist i kind of see this and i'm kind of suspicious of that kind of ideological purity thing so they're always policing their thoughts in the witch they're always like you know turning to prayer they're turning to the scriptures and stuff because it's what they've got and it is suffocating because it's basically it's closing them in fully as effectively as a forest full of witches who will steal your babies and grind them into magic paste to make their brew sticks fly
1: which I think I actually think that is the only that's the only element of the film I'm not huge on because I find it slightly silly
0: yes and I think that the main criticisms of the witch that I kind of that i'm kind of down with actually are where people are going that bits you know the broomstick and the baby in ground to be a is silly and the ending where she like flies in the air and floats around the campfire is silly and actually i totally get that and that goes back to a point that i nearly made earlier on is that sometimes the harder you are to be historically accurate the harder it becomes to be historically accurate the harder you try the harder it becomes Yep. So the, the broomstick and the grinding the baby into paste and the flying around the campfire. Robert Eggers got those from accounts of the time.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I am from...
0: <laughs> no, go on, go on.
1: No, I was just going to say, I'm from um, very near Salmsbury and very near Pendle and an awful lot of the testimony around the witches that were w- witches that the were, witches, um, yeah. um, you know, executed or prosecuted in the assizes an awful lot of that is around infant mortality and the accusation that so-and-so stuck a pin in, an, in this baby to become powerful or you know it, it makes sense because that is what people were accused of and believed yeah but to i think there is an element of the fact that in The Witch, those things are literally true. Yes. Or at least appear to be. I always kind of have an issue with it. Like, I always kind of, and this brings me back to the, the good for her girl boss thing. Uh-huh. I, always kind of, I always kind of have an issue with when feminists trot out that old, we are the daughters of the witches you failed to burn thing. Because no, we're not. We're the daughters of women who are unfairly, persecuted for like maybe being a bit too clever or a bit mad or not married or who lost a child
0: well
1: yeah or who lost a child and couldn't account for how yeah you know like you can't interpret historical accusations of witchcraft literally because it's all about misogyny and how the the accusation of witchcraft was used often as a way to control and subjugate women
0: mostly yeah transgressive
1: um i mean i know i know men were also actually accused of witchcraft and we don't really hear much about that
0: um there's, there's only one really famous male witchcraft uh, trial and that's urban grandier in Loudun, which is the film that gave us um the devils and the, sorry it gave us the films the devils and mother joan and the angels uh, but that's it there's many more of women
1: i think i think with the witch I can get on board slightly more with the good for her thing simply because I think the main character, Thomason, you know, her parents have no money, their crops are failing, they're talking about shipping her off to go and work in another family's house. She has absolutely no control over her own fate, Um, nor does her mother really. You know, her mother obviously would love to be back in England. Her, Her father... Or made the decision, and brought them over to America. You know, they they're rapidly losing children <laughs> as the film goes on, and I think to some degree, I think she does find slightly more liberation than Danny does.
0: It is all, but you see, this is why I thought it was a sort of radicalization because it's basically her best option is to join a bunch of people who grind babies into yeah. paste um, that's her best bet that's the best you can hope for and that's the horror of the film mm-hmm. at the end that's the final uh, yeah. horror of the film and that's why it's not really good for her because it's like her best bet is grinding babies into paste you
1: yeah know. i don't necessarily think it's a film i don't think it's a film about empowerment no i think it's a film about surviving under conditions of just like complete disempowerment rather than empowerment. Yeah. I think she's just a character who has no ability whatsoever to influence her own fate. And the only choice she's given isn't really a choice because it's all she's got. But it's better than what you had. It
0: is. But then, you know, is it I is it? Because you talk about like the crushing religious obsessions of the family. But her dad actually loves the family.
1: He does but He's I mean there are, <laughs> there, there, there are multiple scenes though where she is like treated fairly badly by both of her parents yeah and you know I think the witch is a complicated one it is because I think I think midsummer it's much more it's much more infuriating the way people um, <laughs> reacted to it. I think the witch it is easy to see why people come to that and think oh good for thomas and she's gonna get what does the i mean this shows how crushing her sort of status in life is the things the devil offers her are a pretty dress and some butter
0: yes the taste of um the taste of butter and a nice dress and living deliciously whatever the hell that means and it's like she's willing to sell by the point that at that point in the film she's basically just willing to give her soul to satan to give her soul to a goat for the sake of a knob of butter and a nice outfit. And, and, and that's, that's, I mean, it's supposed to be crushing. It's crushing. The liberation that comes is basically a sort of like second-rate liberation. Speaking of um, liberations that come and life's without choices and things, I'm not entirely sure if that is actually a good way to segue into talking about our modern day, um, our return to the 21st century with promising young women. Which yes. is but
1: before we segue into that, because I have like I know we both have a ton to say about that. Okay. But I just wanted to um say one thing that really struck me finally about the okay. witch. Final point by the witch. Which was the very final scene where she is lifted into the air and she's laughing maniacally and she's sort of experiencing whether it's false or not, this feeling of wow, I'm powerful, I'm doing this thing. I could not get over how similar that scene felt to the final scene of St
0: Maud. Yes, and of course, the final scene of St Maud's is also, of course, revealed just for a split second to be a lie. Yeah. As well.
1: Which also would bring us to censor.
0: Yeah, because they have the same twist in the final scene. Yeah. And, and it's presented in the same technique. Exactly. And exactly. I think it's so interesting. Technique. Um, and I think
1: they are examples of more complex portrayals of women in horror. They are, and um, I
0: mean St Maud's, also in St Maud's cases of religious religious belief and religious belief in the face of trauma and mental illness as well. But, I mean, you've got St Mauds, you've got the woman in censor, um, who, Neve Algar's character, I can't remember her name, but you've got Carey Mulligan in Promising Your Woman. Now, Promising young woman I saw this afternoon, and Kerry um, Mulligan plays Cassie. Cassie um, begins the film as someone who every week goes out, pretends to be drunk, gets picked up by some douchebag who tries to take advantage of her, reveals that she's not drunk, and gives him a hard talking to. At the end of this, at the very least, <laughs> at the very well, no, I, I mean it doesn't. It doesn't actually sort of openly. Pres- until the end of the film, there's no violence until, like, the end of the film. She doesn't...
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but after, like, the the opener...
0: And now you see... Have, she's, she no, she's got this red spear. No, no, she's this ketchup.
1: Ketchup? Of course, of course. Of
0: course, it's a fake-out. Because you see this red spear down her dress, and then you see she's eaten a really messy hot dog in ketchup, which is all over her. I mean... To to
1: me, that it was was revealed later
0: that Jerry was all right because he actually warned his friends about her.
1: That exact moment of her messily eating a hot dog covered in ketchup that while doing the walk of shame horror horror movie, the so called walk of
0: shame, yeah,
1: I think kind of epitomises why some people really, really love the film and why I have reservations. And I think it's because, to me, that's quite a heavy-handed phallic metaphor.
0: Yes, yeah, what sausage? She's just eating a sausage at the end.
1: Yeah, and I, I think uh, with, with Promising Young women again, it's, it's hard because the, the, the topic of girlboss feminism isn't really about the films themselves. About the reception to the
0: films. And indeed, um, one of the reasons that we're talking about this is that I saw an infuriating meme that had like nine movies, and I can't remember the other movies, right? But it had like pictures of the final scene of Midsummer the Witch and a bit of promising young woman of her in the, the nurse the, costume, promising young woman, movie. and it's the good for her cinematic universe. Yeah. And I remember showing it to you and just sort of going, ah, you would think initially that her basically just sort of like revealing she's not drunk and giving these guys a right are hard talking to is a girl boss thing to do. But towards the two thirds point of the film it is revealed that all it's literally done has basically caused the men of the town to go watch out for that psycho who pretends to be drunk and then gives you a tongue lashing. They don't learn anything. No, because um, no, this <laughs> guy Paul who's like oh, you're that psycho that Jerry took home. Is that really what they got out of it?
1: I think as well, you see you see that she's very willing to hurt women and girls on her way. So it's not yes. really necessarily a good for her because it's like, she very willfully endangers quite a young girl. She endangers a girl, teenager, yeah. Yeah, because, because that girl's mother
0: didn't take the sexual
1: assault of her friend seriously, basically. Um, One thing I think is interesting about the film is most rape revenge movies are people revenging their own rape. Yes. I think it's very, very interesting that what she is out for revenge for is the rape of her friend back in school who then... Uh died
0: by suicide. Yeah, I think I think the sense is is that her friend had a horrendous psychological break, spiraled into a depression, dropped out of uni because they were best friends since like tiny childhood. She dropped out to take care of her friend, and so was therefore present when her friend took her own life. Um having been unable to process and cope with the trauma of the whole thing, of not just the event happening, but it not being believed. Um,
1: i think that is interesting i think most rape revenge films like i said are usually the person who has actually physically had that event happen to them yeah sort of avenging themselves um
0: usually violently
1: yeah i mean i i can't remember the name of it but there was a film that i spoke to you about about a few months ago that turned into a rape revenge film. Are we talking
0: about the perfection?
1: We are, yes, yeah. And that kind of- I
0: I recently wrote about the perfection, so it's
1: close to my mind. I haven't haven't
0: read it, so I I shan't comment because I'm probably gonna duplicate things instead. Well, I don't mind. Yeah, that's fine. um, Yeah, (laughs) it turned into a rape revenge, it's basically an onion skin thing. You think it's one sort of horror film. And then it's like, I, I ended up watching it three times um, the perfection and I found actually that each of its reveals is actually foreshadowed none of its reveals are structurally um, outside of the realms of possibility they're all things that you have a greater than zero chance of working out just based upon what you've already seen in the film and I that's mean, I, really interesting
1: I do
0: I, I, mean, I really shadow- like I
1: I, I found some of do the it editing irksome
0: for me. the first time I watched it because I thought it was just a bit too clever, clever. And then the and second little, time. Like, went,
1: bit. Yeah, like, the rewindy bit.
0: So then the second time I watched really it, annoying. I was like, hang on. And so I just immediately went and watched it a third time and immediately picked up on all the details. Like I, I you know, one simple things like an orange pillbox, you know, like a tattoo on a shoulder. And things like that suddenly become I, foreshadows I of what's going on.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really underrated. And I think, I think it's, yeah,
0: massively underrated.
1: Anyone listening to this should absolutely seek it out because if you're enjoying this conversation, you
0: will like that film. Basically. I think. I think. I think it's is also really interesting, actually, that it's a film about grooming and sexual abuse and all sorts of things. Massive content warning if you haven't seen it, but. Made in 2018 by Miramax. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and after Weinstein had been arrested, like after Weinstein was, was out of the picture, but Miramax produces a film about that.
1: I know, I mean...
0: After Me Too comes out. After I, Me Too happens.
1: The cynic in me wants to say they probably would have produced it even before then,
0: if yeah. they thought it was going to make them money. <laughs> but, Quite possibly. Anyway, um, going yeah, back to but, Promising Young Woman.
1: Yes. Which okay, is a so, main
0: subject. Promising Young Woman. Um, so what happens is that she meets, she works in a coffee shop and has no needs for Laverne Cox. Because who wouldn't work in a coffee shop for Laverne Cox, frankly?
1: And, I know. And I found her presence really pleasing. But I think she was underused.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean... She she's I mean Laverne Cox is always underused, let's face it. Um although she's quite fun in that um, show about Anna Delvey that's been on Netflix event as well. She's in there. You no, know,
1: I have not managed to get to the end of it, but that is a whole other I'm Yeah, that no, no, is a whole
0: other podcast.
1: I'm big on the female grifter in general as a concept. Yeah. And I'm writing a novel about it actually at the moment.
0: You heard it here um, first folks. <laughs>
1: I, so I do have an awful lot of thoughts about Delvey, but I will share them with you when we're not recording because right, yeah. it's not um, it's not
0: relevant but, to this but yeah anyway but mean. so she's working for Laverne Cox in the coffee shop a guy comes in who recognizes her and he's a guy who was at medical school with her and remembers her and essentially pushes quite hard to go on a date with her to the extent that he says if you're not interested you could spit in my coffee So she spits in his coffee, and then he drinks the coffee. And he is presented for much of the film as not a, quote, nice guy, but a guy who is nice.
1: Very strangely played in what I think is his only straight, like, non-comedy role ever by Bo Burnham.
0: There's a number of comic actors who play straight roles, so you've but got. But he's not even
1: a comic actor. He's a he's a stand-up who does music.
0: But I mean, he... you know, you've got people, but there are a lot of people who are known for comedy. It's also Jennifer mm-hmm. Coolidge, plays the mum. Um, you've got um, the guy who played Bash Howard from from Glow, as the essential villain of the piece. You've got Alison Bree as well. I love Alison Brie. Uh, to be fair to Alison Brie, she's only known as a comic actor because her best known part was a comic part. But actually, Alison, Alison Brie has been in a lot of drama um, and Horse 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 Girl um, is amazing. They
1: still haven't seen, but
0: look. Right, no for spoilers it. for that then. But yeah, um, but so you have all that going on. But he reveals to her, aside from like taking her out on dates and for them to sort of develop a relationship, which is presented in the style of a romantic comedy. That he is still in touch with a guy called Al, who is getting married soon, and with a woman called Madison, who it has now has children. And Cassie begins to embark on a complex revenge plot where one by one she goes through a list of the people she feels wronged her friend in order to basically approach them. So she goes to the dean of the college who ignored, so ignored her friend that doesn't even remember her friend. Remembers the rapist, doesn't remember the friend, right? And she, as you said, she endangers the, in order to teach this woman a lesson, she endangers the life of the woman's teenage daughter. She um, she puts Alison Bree's character in a situation where she believes she has been date raped. Yeah, it's rough. Um, and she then goes and finds the lawyer who got the guy off and in fact actually has a guy standing outside ready to go in and beat the shit out of him but it turns out the lawyer who's played by alfred molina is actually not lawyering at the time because he's had an epiphany and has realized the terrible sins that he has actually been party to hiding and covering up and is actually in the point when when she comes to the door not only does he remember it but he sees it as something that he is ready to pay for. Mm. And in fact, actually, he is the lawyer, Alfred Molina's lawyer is the only male character of any fleshing out in the film who comes off looking okay because he's the male character who, although to be fair, I mean, Clancy Brown is, Kerry Mulligan's dad is, you know, a fairly nice dad. You know, there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with him, but he doesn't actually get enough screen time for you to actually see what he's really like, you know. No, um, he's not really, he's set dressing, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's, just fancy, brown, banging a character part. But Alfred Molina's character is actually torn to pieces. And I think one of the points the film wants to make is that it wants to sort of say that, you know, you want to be a man that's good. You've basically got to approach this and address this and understand that you're part of this structure and understand that you know it's not enough to be sorry you've actually got to be prepared to do something about it and so at the end the one thing of the ending which i have a problem i have a problem with the ending but the one yeah. thing about the ending which i did like, um because the yeah, the ending is a bit is a bit of a is a bit of a batman gambit frankly isn't it it's it's like all the pieces falling into place a bit too quickly. but the idea that he he might have the phone with the video of the of of being raped on it sent to her with a note saying in the event of my disappearance um yeah that bit I got that bit was fine and I think that bit was necessary and if they just had that bit rather than all the other stuff like the text messages being sent on yeah, a delay. I have a
1: huge problem with
0: that. Um, so the text messages are set to arrive half an hour after the wedding ceremony's over and everybody's at the party, uh, which happens to be happens to be the precise point that the police arrive.
1: Yeah, I think it's very um, I don't know. You and I had a conversation before we were recording but, yeah. uh about perhaps that was the result of studio intervention, wanting everything to be wrapped up in a nice neat bow at the end, and maybe that's the only way you could get a film made. Yeah. Which, you know, potentially is true, but I think um, I, I feel funny about Promising in Women because coming back to the idea of the girl boss horror thing really being an issue of the way people receive these films rather than the films themselves, I kind of disagree with nearly everyone, even people who have completely opposite opinions to each other about this
0: film. Right, <laughs> so I, I mean, because, yeah, like, a, a I... massive spoiler, um, Carrie Mulligan's character dies 23 minutes from the end when she's smothered to death in a scene where it takes exactly as long as it would normally yes. take to smother to death a human. Her body is not given the dignity of being shown beyond a shot of her arm showing that the blood is settled to the bottom and that she is most definitely dead, right? Yeah. And then the last 20 minutes of the film show the police looking for her after her body is disposed of in a bonfire. Various people just falling into line, including the supposedly nice boyfriend, who it turned out was party to the rape and had forgotten just covering up for it. And to be honest, that might have been actually a more feminist point. Although I don't get to talk about what a feminist point is really. I don't think I do. I think you get to talk about what a feminist point is. I think, but I think that crushing ending but then it turns out that she did a Batman gambit where because she's got him handcuffed to the bed. Somehow he gets free of one of the handcuffs.
1: Yeah. And I, I agree with you that there is ambiguity around did she? Did she plan for that
0: to? Did she plan to die?
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. And I, I actually think probably yes, because yeah. I don't think for any of the film she is portrayed as somebody who enjoys being alive, or indeed is recovering from her trauma in any meaningful way that would allow her to to thrive. And it, not that that is a thing that is not possible
0: but it is not actually healthy to go and pretend to be drunk and then ambush guys and give them a talking to
1: in some ways and i think the ending i think the ending where she dies it does kind of follow a classic revenge tragedy trajectory yeah revenge tragedy always ends with revenge being drinking poison and expecting someone else to die essentially you
0: know or in it... or in fact in the Revengers tragedy um he kills the duke and kills the duke's family and then the new duke are basically like so who are you then i'm the guy that killed the duke and the new duke's like yeah well you better die then <laughs> you know and he just executes him on the spot it's just it doesn't end well the revenge tragedy never ends well does it the duchess of Malfi, um all of them
1: hamlet Everything, you know, ghosts, like everything is it is a it's a classic archetype of fiction that revenge hurts the revenger.
0: And I mean promising a, a woman plot. is a Jacobean kind of plot line, actually. It is it is a very Jacobean tragedy in that you have someone going one by one picking off people. Mm-hmm. Again, I think, their own back.
1: I think with regards to the good for her cinematic universe <laughs> take on the film, I think the problem, as with the other films we've discussed, is I think that actually makes the, it, it devalues what is good about the film.
0: Because yeah. It
1: flattens it out and it strips it of nuance because actually not good for her. I don't necessarily want to watch a film where I'm just being comforted and I'm seeing somebody have things go great for them and have them achieve their goals and feel great after doing so. That's not really, I think, what we come to cinema for. I think with Promising Young women, the idea that it's this sort of girl boss getting revenge, oh, haha, like what she's doing to these guys thing, really kind of ignores the fact that she is essentially sort of just ruining her own life every day.
0: Everybody by, is putting herself in deadly danger for yes, what turns I, out to be no result.
1: Yes. And I think as well, the fact that she is putting herself in such danger. I know she probably fully believes that she can get out of these situations because she's sober and the guys are usually not. But I the, think guy, the
0: guy snorting cocaine while know. quoting Jordan Peterson is just
1: too it's, on the nose for me
0: chef kiss it's oh, I know.
1: it was a little too much for me it was a bit too like god you, you know you that? even
0: mentioned lobsters it's like
1: <laughs> i don't know i think um i think the fact that she's willing to put herself in more danger every every week of her life is a sign of her just not really valuing her life like yeah. the only thing in her life is revenge and I think that does lend itself to supporting the idea that she fully intends to not survive the, the ending of the film.
0: Yeah, which but is the I only think, way the Batman Gambit thing makes any sense, really, the extent yeah. to which she goes.
1: But I think as well, like it was promoted so heavily as a feminist masterpiece. And I, I, I think that actually misrepresents what the film is. Because I don't, I don't think that's what it is at all. And I think I, I disagree with... So I, I know people who I respect an awful lot who absolutely hate the film and think it is sort of just pure sort of white feminism in action. And then I know people They're not who, entirely wrong, are they? No, no, I, I, I agree to an extent. And then I also have acquaintances who loved the film and thought it was like, God, sisters are doing it for themselves. Look at this. She's avenging her friend. Look at these fucking guys having a bad time. And I just, I, I sort of disagree with both camps, but in a way where I can see where both, both sides are coming from, which is I understand the impulse to, to want it to be, look at this sort of symbolic figurehead who is avenging all of us. But then I also think seeing Percy as a heroine, I think is really flawed because she acts in ways that are terrible. She endangers, you know, an underage Child. She, yeah, she, you know, exposes other women to great harm. She, you know, she she behaves in, you know, basically a sort of pathological way but also people who dislike the film for those reasons. They're kind of why I like the film. I kind of like it the re- that the way she behaves is not morally perfect. He is a deeply traumatised person who is dealing with things in a terrible way and has been like extremely warped by her inability to move on. I mean, even the colour palette of the film is so pastely and teenage girly, because she has been completely unable to move on from
0: pastel a, rainbow uh, nail, sh- um, nail polish that she has yeah. for the entire film. She's got a nail and polish even, and pastel rainbows.
1: Even the sets, yeah, of a lot of the the, the places in the film I can
0: the coffee shop mainly.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, and um, the way she dresses even is quite little girly. Like when she's, she's 30, she's literally 30. Meeting. Yeah. And I mean, I think I like the fact that she is not portrayed as a heroine. I feel disappointed that people seem to see her as one because I think that's where the good for you thing comes in. And I don't necessarily think it is good for her. I mean, one, she's dead. Two, she really hasn't avenged anyone to a degree that is sort of has made any real impact on society, the world, or indeed, as you've said, the guys that she brings home every week. The only lesson they've learned is this woman, the cycle, avoid her, tell your male friends yeah. I, the, the, friend. the
0: only person who learns anything, learn, learn it by himself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think, I think part of the problem with Promising Young Woman is the way it was promoted heavily lent into the idea that it was an empowering, feel-good feminist revenge movie. And it's not. It isn't. No. It's a, it's a sad film about a very sad, damaged person whose life ends in a kind of needless way after having suffered for a long time. Yeah. And I I think we need to be asking for more from media (laughs) for women (laughs) that is empowering than that. And I also think that cinema, whether it's horror, whether it's a thriller, whatever it is, I don't necessarily think we should be looking to that for our moral guidance yeah. and lessons. Like, it's not a Victorian polemic. Like, I don't need, and I, I would hope that others don't need a film at the end to be like, well, these are the people who are the goodies, these are the people who are the baddies. There's no grey in between. And all the people who are good, things end well for them. And all the people who are bad have the correct amount of justice sort of heaped out to them. I mean, as well, there is some element of the fact that the ultimate, with the police arriving at the end of Promising Young Woman, the ultimate punishment for these people is, you know, the the police state in action, which is not necessarily what I would consider to be justice.
0: Right, yeah.
1: You know, for, for political reasons. And I know other people may not have the same opinions about...
0: The police. You know, the,
1: the, the, the prison system and the police, etc. But I think we should be maybe suspicious of media that portrays um, the bad guys going to jail as the, the ultimate sort of good good resolution
0: for them. I think you're right. I, th- I think that's a good point uh, for us to bring things to a close, because we've been talking for about an hour now. Very quickly then, do you think the idea of a girl boss movie, a good for her movie, is bankrupt or do you think we could actually see a good one?
1: I, I don't like the concept of a girl boss in general yeah. <laughs> because it's very, like, really betraying my politics here, but it's very much the idea of um, why I don't necessarily think feminism should be, we need more female CEOs, we need more female
0: landlords. Diverse voices in worker exploitation.
1: <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't think we need to be replaced with, we don't need more female oppressors, basically. Or oppressors that's not that what liberation looks like.
0: of colour, or anything yeah, like that. like, that's yeah. not what
1: liberation is. But I, I think the idea that there could be media where people you know people avenge themselves or people come to resolutions with of of their trauma um that are positive and whatever you know that's fine that there's space for that it's not necessarily what I want right. I think life's messy I come to horror and cinema in general to be challenged. Right. I don't necessarily just want to be spoon-fed a morally perfect thing. I I, you know, I would like to... <laughs> I said earlier that I was going <laughs> to be provocative and say that I'd rather watch Antichrist, <laughs> but I'm not going <laughs> to... Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> no, I know. Right. I, I would rather watch something that I end it thinking, like, what do I think about that? How do I feel about that? Do I think that's right? What do I think it was trying to say? I would rather, I would rather come out thinking that, and that's how I ended *Midsummer*, And that's how, you know, I ended a lot of the films that people view as being very black and white, good for her feminist films. Right. I right. think we need, we need to stop looking to, and it is a symptom of valid, Backlash to generations of media being kind of politically bad. Right. That we we now want to demand more from media to have better representation and better politics, etc. But I think you can go too far into just wanting everything to fit into, well, you know there were x amount of women queer people people of color and things ended well for all of them and things ended very badly for everyone else and I know how to feel about it and I don't have to think about it at all and I can just go home and you know turn turn my, like I
0: you can go watch a Marvel dance. movie if you want that yes,
1: really. oh my God. or like you know I'll sit down and watch a musical if mm-hmm. if I'm not in the space to you know, be challenged, but I think particularly for horror cinema, which tends to be, you know, what, what you and I speak about together, Yeah. I, I would never sit down to watch a horror film and expect it to explain the world to me or tell me what is morally correct. I would want it to challenge me and maybe, I don't know, it's horror, like horrify me. Show me something that is dark and hard
0: i have to think about right yeah it's a I fantastic do. point for us to knock it on the head um thank <laughs> you for coming on eve i no. am really grateful and we uh, I and we, we've we've actually talked about several subjects that we could have conversations on so we will be seeing eve again in the future thanks again <laughs> Question Embodies is an independent podcast hosted and edited by me, Howard David Ingham. Music is by Stephen Horry. Thanks for listening.